welcome to episode 10 of What's on the Pile, a podcast about watching movies on our backlogs. I'm Nathan Besner, and joining me is Shane Lee. Hey. Don Wells. Hello. Andy Jenner. Hello, podcast land. And Jane Belcastro. Hi. On this episode, we'll be discussing the Roger Corman 1960 horror comedy, The Little Shop of Horrors, where a meek flower shop employee named Seymour Krellboind raises a carnivorous person-eating plant, followed by the 1986 musical directed by Frank Oz, where a meek flower shop employee named Seymour Krellborn raises a carnivorous singing plant. Okay, whose pile was this on? I guess this was on mine. Well, the remake was, and then we decided retroactively to add the original as well. Um, yeah, I'd never seen the recur- So this may be a recurring theme, considering the movies we have on the list, but I avoided this movie as a kid because I thought it was going to be scary. I've been terrified of horror movies all my life. Um, I know this is a musical and it's not scary at all, but the fact that it had horror in the title and it had a monster on the cover, I just avoided it uh, until now. It's sort of the family-friendly take on the deadly spawn. <laughs> <laughs> Well, overall, what did you think, Shane? Did you enjoy it? I did. Um, well, I guess we can start with the uh, the original. Um, I didn't know that it was... I didn't know it wasn't... A, I, thought, I thought they were both musicals. Um, and I didn't know that it was kind of a slapstick comedy. I knew it was not serious and not horror, but I also didn't realize like how goofy it was going to be. I actually, I didn't remember how goofy it was, because I, I had seen it a long time ago when I was a kid. Uh, I was like seven or eight when I saw it, and I hated it, because it had an unhappy ending. And uh, oh, yeah. But uh, seeing it again now, uh, it's an extremely funny movie. Yeah, it was, you know, having, you know, now that WandaVision has just finished his run, it it seemed pitched at the tone of like a sitcom for for like the first maybe 15, 20 minutes. Um <laughs> The shooting was described as being sitcom-like, even. Yeah, didn't they have, like, you know, three cameras or something just kind of shooting shooting wide and, and following the action? Yeah, they were. Uh, they shot the, uh, the principal photography of this over the course of approximately two days, uh, where they uh, were uh, shooting it basically uh, as they were in the process of tearing down the, uh, the sets of the previous collaboration between Roger Corman and Charles B. Griffith, uh, which was the beatnik horror comedy A Bucket of Blood. Uh, I uh, and uh, this this was uh, this was a tactic that uh, the Corman himself would repeat on multiple occasions. Uh, most famously, when uh, they finished shooting the Raven early, they still had Boris Karloff uh, under contract for three days, uh, and uh, ended up shooting the uh, all of Karloff's scenes for the Terror uh, over the course of three days as the sets were being torn down around them. Uh, but uh, the the uh, the story of Little Shop of Horrors, I think, is uh, one of the centerpieces of uh, of uh, Roger Corman's uh, famous uh, autobiography, "How I Made a Hundred Films in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime." Um, but it has a certain uh, it's the the the, uh, the the punches are timed for. You almost feel like there should be a laugh track in there somewhere. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, I, I refer to it as a uh, ramshackle collection of Jewish mother jokes, uh, uh, <laughs> sort of affectionately. Uh, the uh, and it's also one of the few films that I can think of that uh, manages to uh, give uh, Roger Corman's, uh, sorry Roger Ebert's uh, famous uh, rule of funny names, which is to say that uh, no names are funny unless they're used by W. C. Fields or, or Groucho Marx. 
a run for its money. Uh, I actually I actually never uh, realized it before literally looking up the Wikipedia entry on this that his name actually was Krell Boyne as opposed to Krellborn. I think probably because I saw the 86 version first. Yeah, I was I was thrown by that when uh, when watching it. I was like, what is it, Krellboind? Is that something wrong with the subtitles? If I bring that up, are people going to make fun of me? Yeah, but our, our, no. our uh, subtitles were absolute garbage, so we ended up turning them off. I mean, so I thought they were, I, I guess I don't hear very well, because I just thought they were saying Krellborn. Yeah, I didn't, have sub- <laughs> I didn't have subtitles at all. I got it from the library, and it was in a four-pack with... Uh, three other movies and i read afterwards that because this movie is in the public domain because roger corman didn't feel like uh renewing know, the copy renewing right. the, yeah that there are just some sketchy copies out there and this one had like had um scan lines on it and stuff and no subtitles i mean it was still watchable but it was it was kind of interesting yeah a lot the, of, uh, uh, i was gonna say a lot the, of those public domain editions were ripped off of previous vhs public domain editions so uh, it, it it's around. We ended up watching it on the uh, the Roku channel just for convenience, and I swear they were Google translated or, or or automatic subtitles. I mean, right from the very beginning, they identified Detective Joe Fink as Detective Joe Think, <laughs> which gave me a giggle right before we turned the subtitles off. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, I uh, I watched it on Amazon Prime, the version they have on there. And I kind of wish I'd watched the color version because the color version is actually pretty nice. You can see like contours in people's faces. But on the Amazon Prime version, the black and white one, it's just garbage. It's a garbage transfer. It's it's almost pure black and white with no grays. It's so contrasty. Yep. That's what I wasn't too bad. I was just I guess it was the Roku channel that we got it off of. I wish I'd watched it there. Well, it's absolutely one of those things where there there are so many iterations of it around. You're going to have you know public domain copies off of uh, off of uh, original prints. You're going to have public domain copies off of dupe prints, which I think is what you got in that particular instance. You're going to have a lot of crap public domain copies off of public domain VHS copies. As I said, it's it's a film that exists in as many different conditions as there are releases of it. <laughs> um. This movie is considered uh, one of Roger Corman's uh, mainline classics. Like when you come, when you talk about Corman, you talk about Little Chop of Horrors and A Bucket of Blood. Uh, what do you all think uh, makes it such a an enduring classic that has been now adapt has been adapted into a sta- uh, musical? Honestly, that it's comedy and manages to you know have horror elements. But I mean. To me, that's a good that's a classic right there. That's that's the combo. That's the sweet spot. That's what I want to see. Yeah, I think it. I think a weird clash of tones like it has actually makes for a good musical. And um, yeah, I mean, I mean, was this considered a classic before they made a stage musical out of it? I mean, is is that what made it famous and popular, or was it already sort of a hit? I I couldn't tell you actually. I think uh, it was though because my mother and I I was living at home uh, when it when the eighty six one came out and I saw it and loved it and said mom this thing's great and she's like you should see the original and we did and that was the last time i'd seen it so honestly the 1960 is it 60 63 whatever whichever 1960 version that was the one uh that was on my pile because i wanted to see it again because i love the 1986 version (laughs) i mean maybe i think there's an element of people not people not believing what they were seeing because like i said it starts out like a sitcom and then you know before long 
uh, Seymour's carrying around a, a bag of body parts and then just feeding it to a plant. It's like, what the hell just happened? Like, I that that came. I knew it was gonna. I knew it was gonna be gonna take a turn, but I didn't expect it to happen sort of that quickly and that suddenly. Even though I knew it was a short movie, like he's just wandering around. He accidentally kills a guy. Like, like quote kills the guy, um, and then just lugs his body home in a bag, a, a bag that's way too small to carry the entire cut up body, <laughs> and just starts feeding. It I to think the he plant. just took I'm the like, pieces that were left over from the train. I I think he just was like, yeah, hmm. Exactly. This one probably has a lot of blood in it. Let's take it. Just left the what torso a... on the tracks. <laughs> <laughs> what a horrible! They did. The uh, cops later did say uh, there were pieces left over. What a disgusting scene! What a great <laughs> yeah, horror exactly. moment. I know. I kind of love the deadpan cops. I wish that there was an equivalent of them in the uh, the '86 version. But I mean, granted, there was uh, lots of stuff that uh, kind of got built up in the '86 version that didn't really have a parallel in uh, the 1960. But I, I think. I had forgotten how ubiquitous the uh, the, the wordplay was in the, the 1960 version. Uh, the, uh, the 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 constant adding of uh, of uh, inappropriate syllabalizations uh, to the things that the people were saying. Um, the cesarean probably. salad. The cesarean salad, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah they they did a lot. Of, yeah, that was one of my favorite ones. Uh, malapropisms. That's that's, that's the it. word. It's 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 uh, uh, it's uh, la uh, full of malapropisms. The other thing that I think I had not really realized uh, or had all but forgotten about the 1961 is Seymour isn't really the protagonist of the film. Mushnik is the protagonist of the film. Uh, M Mushnik is sort of the seeker of truth character for most of the picture, uh, however compromised he might be as a human being. Uh, and I, I, I thought that was an interesting dynamic that, uh, again, didn't really translate over to the 86, but the 86 was working kind of from a whole different collection of motivations. But uh, this was the sort of thing that you would tend to characterize as kind of a minor classic, not least because when they didn't bother to renew the copyright on it, it became super easy to show uh, on late night television uh, as early as the mid-70s. Uh, and uh, kind of developed a, a sort of a groundswell or a cult following there in its own right. Going back to the detectives really quickly, uh, my favorite line in the entire movie was "Them's the breaks." <laughs> the <laughs> the, uh, the how are the kids lost one played with matches? Them's the breaks. <laughs> Such a great moment. And I love the way they recalled it again at the flower shop with the uh, with uh, I can't Miss Mrs. Shiva. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. That was her nephew. Being, which is about nephew, as, yeah. which is about as Yiddish a joke as you can get across the board. And they ended up, you know, repeating that in in the '86 version when he says, "Mrs. Shiva's a great customer. Her family, her entire family, are dropping like flies." So I, I liked, uh, even I liked though you don't she, see her. I liked that she got a shout out over the phone. Uh, of course, I mean, of course, the other thing that made uh, Little Shop of Horrors a really uh, easy sell in the really uh, early period of VHS, of course, was the proverbial elephant in the room that we haven't mentioned until now, Jack Frickin' Nicholson, uh, as, as the one and only Wilbur Force. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was on the cover of mine. I don't know that would, really would you guys yeah that, that was not an unusual thing with those sketchy public domain editions they really leaned leaned into Nicholson's presence uh, pretty pretty ubiquitously 
whether or not they were decent transfers. I've uh, I've seen I've seen plenty of uh, of uh, instances where people really did seem to uh, take an honest effort in making a good copy of the movie, but they still put Jack Nicholson above the title. It is a very arresting performance. Not quite his first, but very often described as his first. Uh, usually, usually, and more accurately, the first one that anyone noticed is possibly the easiest way to put it. I mean, my favorite character was uh, Murray Futterman. I'm Dick Miller. Just, just, <laughs> Dick. just chowing down on flowers and just yeah. loving it. Yeah. Uh, and I did also didn't realize till later that Audrey uh, is is Sheila Futterman. She yeah, plays, Jackie Joseph. Yeah. I, I looked that up, or I, I I noticed that when I was looking up just the actors on IMDb. I'm like, wait a second, she's Sheila Futterman. Holy shit! Now, forgive my my film knowledge. I've lost some of it over the years, but uh, Joe Dante worked with Roger Corman. He that was where he came up, right? Yes, yes. Uh, Joe Dante uh, uh, cut his teeth uh, initially cutting trailers for uh, Corman's New World Pictures in the '70s. Uh, and uh, subsequently ended up uh, getting assigned along with uh, along with Alan Arkush, uh, who had sort of an interesting career in his own right, uh, but less well known than Dante. Uh, the film Hollywood Boulevard, uh, which was a, a really underappreciated parody, uh, early parody of slasher movies. Uh, and Dante ended up go- going off in sort of a, uh, a different uh, direction, but he never got that far from. Uh, uh, from uh, certain measures of his exploitation roots. And, of course, uh, Dante, uh, like everybody at New World Pictures, loved Dick Miller so much that they put him in... Uh, uh, Dante put him in every movie that, uh, that he made, at least while uh, Miller was still with us. Uh, but most of those other guys uh, always tried to find some room for Dick as well. What a wonderful character actor. Probably my favorite character actor of all time. Uh, most people's favorite character actor of all time, if you want to come get down to it. Uh, going back to that sort of uh, side note of the terror, uh, the 63 picture that, uh, that I mentioned earlier, it's interesting that that uh, reunited uh, Nicholson and Dick Miller and Jonathan Hayes, but all of them in, ser- uh, uh, but all of them in uh, serious roles. Uh, although, once again, Jonathan Hayes did get to get a pratfall, albeit in the, in the form of a mannequin where his character fell off a cliff. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I was happy to find out that uh, Charles B. Griffith, the uh, the writer of the film, voiced the plant, voiced Audrey Jr. Oh, cool! I had not yeah. realized that. That's uh... I had. It was fun. It's so funny to me because uh, the the plant itself is so whiny. It's such a whiny plant in in the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I'm hungry. Yeah. It's like a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And apparently uh, he did the voice off camera and everybody was laughing at the voice so hard that uh, <laughs> Roger Corbin just left it in and decided not to pay somebody else to do a new voice because he's also notoriously stingy. <laughs> he ne- he made 100 movies in Hollywood and never lost a dime. I, I-, I failed to see how this would fail to calculate. <laughs> um... <laughs> Well, I mean, Griffith was an interesting character in his own right. He was, uh, along with uh, the likes of, uh, well, I mean, a little bit later, Richard Matheson, um, let me think, uh, Robert Town later on, uh, sort of one of uh, uh, Corman's stock company of writers, I be- uh, along with uh, also Charles Beaumont and a lot of the guys who ended up uh, working on The Twilight Zone a little bit later on. 
Uh, Griffith was interesting in that he was probably the funniest of the bunch. Uh, I, I uh, one uh, interesting thing that or factoid that I turned up uh, reading up on this, admittedly on Wikipedia earlier today. They had been kicking around the idea. They just wanted to do a, a kind of a funny horror movie. Uh, in fact, it was originally supposed to be a musical, uh, uh, as it turns out. The uh, the original idea that they had was uh, called uh, Cadula, which was a, supposed to be a musical about a vampire music critic, which is now very high on my list of stuff I want for alternate universe video. But, uh, yes. <laughs> I would definitely like to see that. Yeah. I don't know, Don, you've been a little quiet. Any thoughts on this? <laughs> um, I was kind of surprised by um, uh, how much they leaned into the uh, uh, the almost <laughs> Fiddler of the Roof parody Jewishness in the original. And uh, they really toned it down in the uh, sequel. But, like, even... I mean... Gravis Mushnick might be the most Jewy name I've ever heard that doesn't have Berg or Steen or Stein in it. <laughs> and then Seymour uh, Krellboin, you know, also is uh, played as... Like, I mean, like, these are types, like the Schlemiel. Like, these are classic sort of uh, trope figures in the, in the, in the Jewish community. Uh, ta- ta- uh, I, I don't think you could actually make this movie in Hollywood. Yeah. Just, just a, a point of technical order. I think that uh, that uh, in the original Seymour is actually a schlemazel, uh, but uh, no, actually, ch- actually, check. All right, if you're gonna wrong. if you're gonna call he, that, he you, is, have to, is, you have to you have to describe is, the distinction in detail. I, I actually ch- check that. I, I, I'm, I'm mis- I'm, <laughs> Otherwise, I'm you're just blowing smoke. No, no, I, 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 I was wrong, although I will explain the distinction. I, I was wrong. I got it backwards. The schlemiel is the one who spills something. The schlemazel is the one who gets spilled on. So yes, uh, there you uh, go. On, on due consideration, I'm mistaken there. But He's uh, definitely the spiller. Uh, going going to favorite lines in this picture, I know you mentioned uh, uh, yours earlier, Nate. I have to go with just because... It's te- one of those things that tex- that's technically correct, but it doesn't mean quite what the person saying it uh, thinks it means. My favorite line I- I- in uh, the movie is, there's no other cook like my mother. See, I was going <laughs> to say that one. <laughs> because, oh, sorry. because I, well, I mean, anything that had to do with the mother was amazing. I just, I loved that character. She is, and she wasn't in the uh, 1986 one. And I understand because it had been a, stage play and they had to you know keep it simpler but she was nuts hypochondriac uh dipsomaniac <laughs> you name it just a maniac i like the concept that that uh seymour has never had a real meal in his entire life right yeah <laughs> it's just food what is a cure nothing it's just food <laughs> <laughs> And there, there's actually a nice callback to that in the remake where he's where uh, Rick Moranis is clutching a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Because in oh. the original, he, he's eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and he has no idea what it is he's eating. So I thought that was a that was a cute oh, that's callback. a nice callback. Oh, I didn't yeah. notice that. Wow! Yay! Thanks. The amount of callbacks is actually pretty impressive. Yeah, I was going to say, if anything, I think I actually appreciated the 86 version more by uh, re-watching it right after re-watching yeah. the 1960 version. Yeah. Just, Same. So you can see 
not not just the ways in which it changed, but the ways uh, uh, that uh, or what the changes meant. Like uh, in the original, uh, Seymour has you know the mother of all Jewish mother jokes. Uh, uh, whereas he's an orphan in uh, the remake, the uh, uh, the uh, the two little uh, or the two teenager uh, girls in the f- first one kind of sorta morphed into the chorus uh, characters in the uh, the remake, or at least that was kind of how I saw it. Uh, it it's, uh, it lent uh, a lot more into a, a New York sort of Skid Row. Whereas uh, the original was very distinctly a Los Angeles skid row, or at least that was the feeling that I got out of it. I got yeah, that feeling as well. Pr- pretty nice dress clientele in the original for skid row. And the, the fact that you have girls scouting for, uh, to, to, to decorate a float for the Rose Bowl in skid row. Didn't... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, nothing. Just, uh, it, just, it was just kind of funny how uh, Mushtick was always complaining about being on skid row, but it really didn't feel like it in the original. They, they do push into that a little bit more in the remake i think they or, dedicate I a keep, whole song I, to it yeah, I, I keep saying yeah. remake i keep saying remake it's not really a remake it's it's an adaptation of it's an adaptation of an adaptation i guess is what you would call it i actually to, to go back to my uh very early point about being uh, scared of horror movies there the ending for me actually was kind of horrific the the faces in the flowers it, i can't think of what movie it is but there's been there was another movie where people's faces were kind of appeared in another form that that really disturbed the hell out of me. I think I just have a thing with faces being in places where they don't belong that just creeps me the hell out. But that that scene at the end, not with Seymour, but before that with the with all the other victims, when those little flowers came up and you saw their faces, even though it didn't look gross or or real, it was that like was horrifying to me on a sort of visceral level. No, it's uh when I was a kid, that ending was what fucked me up so much. Aww. Uh yeah, seeing seeing Seymour's face pop out of a flower bud and he says I didn't mean it. I was like, "What? What is this? What did I just watch?" <laughs> let alone let alone the traveling uh uh prostitute scene. Right. Oh, that was so, funny yeah. though. How she just kept showing up everywhere. Yeah. And to say nothing of this was released in a period where, uh, I mean, when it was originally released, it was released in a period where horror movies were still considered to be something for kids for the most part. Uh, So, yeah, probably kind of messed up a whole generation there because the original was fairly successful. Uh, The the common supposition uh, is that the... um, the buds uh, with uh, the human faces is actually a nod back to a story called Green Thoughts by John Collier, who is actually one of my favorite authors that basically no one around these days has ever heard of. Uh, but uh, he was also responsible for a story called Evening Primrose, which is uh, most famous as uh, kind of the first story about a society of people living inside a department store and or mall. Uh, so he, a weirdly influential mid-century uh, fantasist. And one of my, uh, his book, Fancies and Goodnights, is one of my personal textbooks for you know, how to write witty, subtle, uh, vaguely twisted fantasy. Uh, but uh, you know, a fairly influential uh, story in its own right, but uh, not really an acknowledged inspiration. But having read it, yeah, it's there's definitely a bit of that in there. You know, one moment that I found uh, particularly silly and fun was when the plant hypnotizes Seymour to get him to oh. get food. 
I really enjoyed that. Uh, just it really to me up upped the ante on the ridiculousness. Uh, and one one of my notes when I was when I was taking notes while watching it was that the film was delightfully batshit. And <laughs> I think I think that's yeah. The 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 zombification of uh, of Seymour. I still don't know I actually how I actually feel about that as kind of a narrative uh, uh, turn, uh, simply because, weirdly enough, the, it's I mean the the characterizations are relatively basic, particularly for uh, Audrey and uh, Seymour. But at the same time, the, their romance is affecting almost in spite of itself. But that kind of puts a hard stop on it uh, from a standpoint of the narrative and ushers us into a third act where nothing can possibly go right for basically anybody. Uh, yeah. it, it, it felt like a little bit of a narrative contrivance uh, right at the point where the story was starting to show a, a, a measure of slightly more complex character development. So, I, I mean, I still like I, I still like it fine from an entertainment standpoint, but I don't know is that I like it quite so much from uh, an artistic standpoint, if that makes any sense. <laughs> That's probably horribly pretentious, but uh... <laughs> when, when when talking about Little Shop of Horrors, I think maybe a smidge. <laughs> it's like, what do we got to do to keep this moving? Have the plant hypnotize him. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it did we got, absolutely. We feel got like two. That. We got two days to get this done. <laughs> how how else are we going to get him to kill one more person? Just right. keep writing. Just keep writing, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, I think there's a good place to take our break. Uh, we will be right back. back um i'm i was having some trouble trying to come up with a way to get into topics of conversation on uh the newer version of little shop of horrors and i think that's because i find it to be a near perfect film and jane if uh you were just saying that it's in your top five it is absolutely in my top five i try to watch it as often as possible i go around singing it for days afterwards she does i absolutely love it i i was folding laundry watching the end of it uh upstairs just belting out the tunes and my son came out of his room and said you watched that six years ago i'm like i've watched it many times since then (laughs) you remember me watching it six years ago so but yes it is absolutely one of my favorites it's so sweet and funny and it the songs are great and i love uh the greek chorus of women um ronette ronette crystal and chiffon all named after girl groups from the 60s and anyway i just love it and the oh and two of those ladies uh are tishina arnold and um Tisha Campbell, I believe, and yep, Tisha Campbell and, Martin, and, and they are from. Uh, well, they were they were later in uh, Martin Lawrence show, which I also liked, and I didn't realize that they were in there. And I watched it again shortly after watching an episode of uh, Martin, and was like, "Oh my gosh!" <laughs> so yeah, I, I absolutely adored that movie. For a for a long time, this was the movie with Tisha Campbell Martin in it to me. Oh. <laughs> 
I like I liked Martin. I was a fan of the show. I think I that those two ladies are actually friends in real life or cousins. Um, I my friend Swift said that he grew up with them. So oh. in I think it was Cleveland. I can't remember where he's from, but yeah. So <laughs> interesting. Do Do you want to tell him who Swift is? Does it matter? Let's not. No. We can drop names. Okay. I mean, he's the DJ from Outcast, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. You're you're welcome to drop names anytime. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, he was. He's. Uh, he used to like stay at our house like every weekend, and so he'd tell us these stories about growing up. And so apparently, he knew them. That's Maybe, very cool. I feel like I made him watch Little Shop of Horrors with us, so I don't know. Probably had that moment. Yeah, I know. I saw it. Tish <laughs> took me to it. Uh, but, <laughs> it's possible. Well, starting from the beginning, um, the one of the most uh, one of the big changes that I think between the original and the and the remake is really repositioning Skid Row as being a living, breathing character. With its own yeah, song. Yeah, Skid Row was almost a, a side effect of the ramsh- uh, I say ramshackleness, sort of the, the, the dumpiness, fly by the seat of their pants uh, aspect of the original. Uh, you know, you got a you, you've got a bear set. Where would a bear set for a, for a flower shop look appropriate? Well, that would be Skid Row. Uh, whereas it's a f- sort of a fully invested environment in the uh, the uh, the remake. With very intense people on the street shouting their lines and stuff. So. That's good. I had forgotten how in- you you pointed the, this out, but uh, I had forgotten how intense everybody was in that Skid Row song right at the beginning there. Rrrr, looking on their faces. <laughs> <laughs> It almost felt like a scene out of a zombie movie. I mean, albeit a musical zombie movie, but it had a little bit of that aspect to it, which I, I, I think is sort of appropriate to the period it was all hearkening back to in the first place. Now, Shane, this is the first time you'd seen it? Yeah, this is my first time seeing it. Um, I, you know, to be honest, going before I see, saw either of these movies, I didn't I wasn't really sure how a musical about a killer plant was going to work. But after I saw the original, I kind of knew exactly how it was going to work. But I was, I was still like, I was still surprised and and delighted by the way they sort of expanded on certain things, you know, because they need songs to, 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 to have. Uh, they they need story elements to have songs about, and I I was kind of uh, pleasantly surprised by what what they ended up using. Like I um you know they kept talking about Audrey's abusive boyfriend, um. I did not expect it to be Steve Martin. I, I knew I knew who the cameos were going to be. Or I, I don't know if cameo is the right word, but I knew who the sort of the guest stars were going to be. I was expecting maybe Jim Belushi as the uh, abusive boyfriend. <laughs> but then she talks about him, and then Steve Martin shows up on his bike, and I'm like, whoa. And he's uh, perfect, was, right? Yeah, it was, that was and hilarious. And the choreography. And, 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 and I didn't know he was the dentist at first. I love the dentist from the first movie. We didn't even talk about the dentist. Oh, yeah. But uh, th- then he turns, you know, gets off his bike, and all of a sudden he's a dentist. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was great. Well, the, uh, the, the dentist is uh, possibly worth leaning into at this point because, of course, in the original, uh, the dentist was uh, just sort of a throwaway or, or feed to the plant uh, character. Uh, but uh, it, it was just happened to be, you know, the mother of all sadistic dentist jokes. Where So the relationship with him and Wilbur Force is sadism and masochism in a non-romantic sense, 
whereas, uh, or at least uh, you, you've got the sadist on the one side. The sadist is already dead by the time the masochist uh, shows up in the original. Uh, but it, it, th- there's a much more distinct undercurrent of kink in the 1986 version. Uh, it's, it's probably the single kinkiest part of the movie, just because, it, it, whether deliberately or not, it's uh, the, by making Audrey the dentist's um, girlfriend, it turns that into a sadomasochistic relationship as well, but in the meantime, you get uh, 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 Arthur Denton, a name I'm going to circle back to, uh, played by Bill Murray, uh, uh, who manages to get to the dentist before he gets killed in this instance, uh, to the point where uh, the, uh, uh, the the sheer depths of his masochism really ends up pissing the dentist off. Gotta get a candy that. bar! Oh yeah, yeah, candy that, bar. That's, that scene made me uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, it's kind of supposed to. I think. I mean, I mean, the Jack Nicholson's version did too, but but Bill Murray with the cotton in his mouth was just, yeah, that that was like grossed me out. And uh, entirely ad libbed, I think. I was that, thinking that probably. It's Bill Murray, so it's definitely ad libbed to some extent. But I don't think there was a word written for his character, not a line, and he came up with everything. No, I, I didn't know that, but I absolutely believe it. Uh, but uh, like I say, uh, well, okay, to circle back relatively directly, I had originally experienced the 1986 version. I first saw it on television, I guess, on its uh, on its like a net network broadcast premiere, and uh, subsequently saw it here and there in varying degrees of completeness a few times. So I will go with I. In the past, at least, I don't think I have loved this movie as much as I should. Uh, it, it is uh, kind of my take there. My horror-themed musicals are uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Phantom of the Paradise, and to a lesser extent, uh, Shock Treatment. Um, the thing that I had not particularly noticed, or I had not particularly cognated coming uh, to it this time, was the original stage production was done in 1982, coming shortly off the heels, particularly of the uh, the beginning of, I guess, the fullness of the Rocky Horror Cult. Uh, and I had not previously noticed sort of the common DNA between them, which was they're both fundamentally affectionate shoutbacks to uh, varying degrees of cheesy 50s and 60s uh, science fiction and and horror pictures. Um, I think bringing that distinct, slightly kinkier element uh, back into the the film version, not least because the masochistic uh, dental patient character was not in the stage play, and that they ended up calling him Arthur Denton uh, definitely leans into some sort of, uh, some burgeoning uh, sort of cult uh, media uh, background that was, uh, that was uh, starting to get, uh, uh, you know, uh, pick up steam around that time. Denton, of course, being the, uh, uh, the town from uh, Rocky Horror that, uh, that uh, Brad and Janet left. Uh, and, of course, Arthur Dent being the protagonist of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was starting to get pretty big around 1982 and thereabouts as okay. well. You know, what I was struck, I, when you said Denton, I'm like, well, that's part of the tooth. 
<laughs> that also that also works. It's so. spelled differently, but yeah, but you have it you have it on uh, homophonic grounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that was one of the things that struck me, and uh, I I think between as I say uh, realizing that and watching it right after the original, I actually liked it a lot more this uh, this viewing than uh, I think I did on previous viewings. You know something uh, something I've noticed I get whenever I watch this movie is that I have a different performance that I love uh, every time I watch it. Uh, this time it was Christopher Guest. Yes, yes, I am absolutely with you on that. I just love well, his. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, you go ahead. I, I'm about to go on a, on a different tangent, so go ahead. No, that's okay. I was just going to say I love him. Well, no, I, I uh, that was actually one of the things that I was thinking about as well is just the sheer uh, capital S straightness of uh, uh, of his performance and delivery actually reminded me a little bit of uh, of Brad Majors at the beginning of uh, of Rocky Horror, and that that may just be my own sort of individual and subjective oppression or impression, but uh, it uh, definitely had a, a little bit of that. Uh, supremely uplight, upright white suburbanite kind of feel to it, which in some regards was sort of the ideal that, uh, well, Audrey particularly was working toward uh, in uh, in uh, uh, the remake. Uh, Audrey was a much simpler character in uh, the 1960 version. She was just a sweet girl who loved flowers, liked doing her job, and loved Seymour. Yeah, she's kind of a darker character in the in the eighty six. Absolutely, she's a darker character in the eighty six. She's in a, a fundamentally involuntary, sadomasochistic relationship. She's if that isn't some stuff, if, if that isn't the sixties filtered through the seventies, I don't know what is. <laughs> so, speaking of characters, performances that we couldn't keep our eyes off, I could not take my eyes off of the plant, the full grown plant. Um, yes. I'm assuming the the puppetry. I'm assuming it's puppetry is how yes. they did it. Yeah. Was yeah. absolutely amazing. The the mouth, the you know the, the the lip movements, the the way it moved around, was absolutely astounding. Like every second it was on screen, I was just staring at it, amazed. Like there's no way a CG version could ever stand up. Yeah, to, to that creation. You're damn right. <clears throat> yeah. Th those lips alone, those lips actually gave me a Rocky Horror flashback as well. But uh, <laughs> the uh, the the sheer measure of articulation that they built into those things yeah. was was absolutely. Sta You're absolutely Impressive. right. Uh, CG could never do the life of that creature right. justice. No, they really bring it to life in a, in an interesting way. Uh, yeah, it looks completely convincing, and when Rick Moranis is you know singing in its face. You, you can believe that he's actually, you know, talking to something that's alive in front of him. No, I mean, amazing. just to, just to make a, a weird reference, but is, is this a case where, uh, where someone like, I don't know, Jim Henson's success, uh, sort of leads to like, Henson that... a, a growth in success and puppets. Like, oh, you know, puppets can actually be pretty successful, uh, successfully done. You can really bring these things to life. I'm, I'm wondering if there's an influence there. Um, I do know that uh, Jim Henson, when the when the movie came out, he, his commentary on it was uh, he couldn't believe how they got the lip sync so good. Interesting. Okay. All right. Now, as far as the actual uh, visual effects of this, there is some early CG built into this, uh, oh. mostly f 
uh, at the, mostly at uh, at uh, the very beginning of the film, that sort of star field effect, as oh, okay. well as some oh. some of the other little opticals uh, that got uh, uh, that got thrown in there. They were, and I hadn't realized this until I saw the credits this time. The uh, uh, the special visual effects work was done by one Bran Farron, who is more commonly remembered at this point as uh, the guy who ended up screwing up all of the effects work in Star Trek V, not to put too oh, no. a point on it. <laughs> and so I'm thinking that this may have accidentally gotten him the job on Star Trek V, which he was absolutely no in no way qualified for. Uh, because at this point, if we look at Star Trek V as anything, it's the film where the effects work let the side down. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I just uh, thought, uh, again, uh, you know me, I'm all about context. I'm all about you know what happened before. I'm uh, all about what happened afterwards. So if, if, if this is, uh, yeah, uh, granted, there weren't nearly as many visual effects in this as uh, there, there were in, uh, in ST5, and probably he had more time to spend on the little ones that he uh, that they had to do because those well i mean uh, the, the fact that you're surprised that there's anything in there kind of is sort of indicative in its own right well especially considering how big the budget was for this film um you'd think they'd get the very best and uh, m- maybe he just deals better with smaller uh uh not not doing a whole film by himself well exactly <laughs> i i mean the uh, the uh I'm not, in this case, I'm talking about like the photographic or optical effects, not about the actual yeah. physical effects. This is a supremely physical movie, uh, and, and any visual effects are, uh, well, it's kind of a side effect uh, as far as it goes. And most of them are in the uh, the reshot ending. Yeah, which is probably worth leaning into at this point as well. Did anybody nice watch the? Did everybody watch the alternate ending? No, there's an alternate ending. I, oh, I yes. didn't see that. Yes. Oh, the well, alternate well, ending. Well, uh, well let's, the... let's look at it this way. Shane, how did the movie you saw end? Uh, shoot, I just watched this yesterday. I'm blanking on the very end. I mean, it ended happily for everybody. Okay, yeah. That's, that's, a, that's an interesting I, 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 I ending rem- that you saw there, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't, re- I couldn't remember the details, but yeah, he... Don't, they get married, right, and, and just run off. Yeah. yeah, they they get to they go to their better homes and gardens house, and then the right, camera right. Uh, uh, pans down, and you find a, a new Audrey too. Oh yeah, yes, yes. Okay, that's, that's right. Okay, that's the one I saw. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, do you remember uh, the part where Audrey uh, runs out of the shop after being, you know? rescued from the monster and he says Audrey are you alright and she's like yes and then she's like no and then she falls on the ground she doesn't get up in the alternate ending yeah really yeah they kill her yeah the alternate ending is based on the ending of the actual stage play which is straight up Biollante apocalypse um (laughs) Yeah, the the movie ends with Audrey two growing to kaiju size proportions and taking over the planet and swinging on the really? on the bridge the uh, uh, in a most Cloverfield type manner. So yeah, but you probably haven't seen Cloverfield because <laughs> it's scary. I've seen Cloverfield. Oh, you have? Oh, okay. Oh yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, you know, it, it can't uh, go on the pile, unfortunately. No, I've seen it. every freaking buddy dies in the uh, in the director's cut. Funny story about the director's cut in its own right. I would I wouldn't call it a director's cut per se. 
it actually is a director's cut, and I'll explain why. Okay. Uh, what 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 happened was uh, when the film was originally released on DVD, uh, it actually became a collector's item almost instantly. One, because it included the original raw work print footage of the alternate ending of the film in black and white uh, as a supplementary feature, which was very shortly thereafter withdrawn because Frank Oz angrily called up Warner Brothers and said that he didn't want them to release that because he was working on actually finishing it in color and completing it. Uh... I heard that that was David Geffen who made that call. Really? Oh, I, I, I would certainly allow that as a possibility. But uh, they uh, they definitely wanted to do something on the order of a director's cut with that alternate footage. Yeah. So it took several years between that call and the eventual release of the thing on Blu-ray before it finally uh, actually emerged. As so far as I can tell, every interview Frank Oz has given, he's preferred the uh, uh, the. Uh, reshot cut over the original uh, ending oh. as a as a director. Oh, which mistake. is why I don't. That's why I don't call it a director's cut. <laughs> it's well, okay. a producer's that's, cut. Well, okay, that well, okay, that's that's perfectly fair. Doesn't except for Halloween Six, that doesn't sell as well on the actual video package, though. No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, 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 I apologize for using the word actual like five times in the last minute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> No, um, I, I, I'll, I'll stand corrected on that point. I, I had been under the apparently mistaken impression that it was Oz. So, uh, well, we well I mean, all these all these stories are apocryphal to begin with. So, well, fair enough. We can refer to it as the best cut, the one that was the theatrical cut, because I just I, I loved the end of that. And yes, you know, you get another song with the alternate ending, and you also get the monster coming out of the screen and eating the audience. Which is pretty cool, but actually, Jay, now that you described the scene where Audrey dies, I I do remember. I have a note about that. When um, <clears throat> Seymour's trying to pull her out of the monster, and you just see the legs coming out, I have expected him just to pull out her legs. <laughs> I, I, I feel like maybe been in the awful. I mean, it, it wouldn't have fit this movie, but I could see maybe it happening in the Corman version. But uh, that's, yeah, I mean, because she was completely in the in the mouth except for her legs. I was like, oh, it's, it's just going to be her legs he pulls out, but. No, she's fine in in my version or the version that I saw. Well, on both of them, she she does get a he does pull her out whole, but you know, like I said, they go to the alley and he says, "Are you all right?" And she's like, "Yes," and then she's like, "No." <laughs> so <laughs> I know most people will probably find her voice annoying. I think it's so adorable. So no, well, Ellen Green is, love, is amazing in oh, that movie. So good, and the uh, timing when, you, when she's singing, you can hear her like real voice coming out some, sometimes at yes. certain points. Yeah, and she definitely has some pipes on her. Oh yeah, no, uh, she's definitely got one of those classically brassy uh, New York voices, but her delivery in this is, I think, so perfectly modulated. Uh, the, the the level of vocal control that uh, that and, and restraint that uh, I think she exhibits uh, all through this is w- one of the more singularly effective uh, or affecting I should say um, female leads in any of these musicals. Uh, it, uh, watching this, I actually liked it a lot more than I did on any previous viewing. I think I probably mentioned that before, but I'm. Now, now a lot more considering it uh, kind of of a piece of the ones that I had previously sort of venerated over it. Uh, 
I, 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 I'm loving it better than I did before. So we can watch it every couple of months? <laughs> I can't watch anything every couple of months. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what puts it in a top five or top, in the top, any of my top ten. I have to be able to watch it on repeat over and over. So, this is definitely one of those. I I would like to talk about the uh, the endings a little bit more because uh, I actually prefer the uh, reshot ending. I I do prefer it uh, for one big reason, which is I was I didn't want Audrey to continue to be victimized for the entire film. Thanks. And yes, I agree. Yes. And getting her getting her away from from Audrey and all that. Uh, that I I just I enjoyed that ending a lot more than uh, having her die. Yeah, I, I I possibly the lead I buried there is I do like the happy ending better than the uh, the other ending. I'm glad that the version with the other ending completed and incorporated into the film exists. Having oh yeah. Se- having seen the other ending, you can kind of see the seams a little more than maybe you did or wanted to on the theatrical version of the ending, but the the theatrical version of the ending does give, well, does give those characters kind of the end they deserve. You know, they're, they're nice people. They deserve to do okay. <laughs> they've, done yeah. some bad, they've done some bad things, but we like them and we want them to be all right. I'll have to check my DVD that I got from the library. It, it's I, I'm guessing it's on there. I'll, I'll have to check it out because it sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, it sounds horrifying, but also a lot of oh, fun. Oh, it's a lot of fun. It is definitely a lot of fun. And it's in black and white. No, well, it's, it, it's in color in the uh, the Blu-ray edition. Oh, they, is they, it? They did finally finish it. Oh, okay. That's, all, that's also the version that's currently on HBO Max, which, again, purely as a matter of convenience, was how we ended up watching it again. Is that the... Wait, the one with the restored ending? Yeah. Because I had the... Uh, I watched it on HBO Max, and it was the original... The reshot ending. Really? Yeah. No, no. The one on HBO Max is definitely the theatrical reshot ending. Um, the one on the Blu-ray is the... You know, is the... Ah. The first... Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought... One that is not... Yeah. I, I have to confess, I didn't actually quite finish the uh, rewatching it on HBO Max uh, uh, directly. I was remembering <laughs> the Blu-ray uh, that we watched. Yeah, that you that, got that for me. Watched, yeah. That was like yeah. one of the first things you got for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing I really liked about the uh, the newer version uh, was the effects work allowed it to give a lot more character to Audrey too, uh, instead of Audrey Junior. Um, the plant in the Corman version was funny. Uh, the voice was funny. I, I I found it very funny. But the characterization that's given to Audrey too, I think, is is much more interesting in the in the later version. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that he could have full conversations with it, and it and it was you know had a full personality. It wasn't just feed me, feed me. And I guess they implied that he's from outer space too. Mm-hmm. It was like the instead of I well. In the original, they said he was he was Japanese, and the in the new one, he it was implied that it was from a Chinese guy, but it turns out it was actually just from space, which I thought was kind of interesting. Again, leaning back into that uh, sort of uh, older uh, uh, or you know uh, mid-century monster movie tradition, uh, as much as anything else. 
You know, I do have uh, one of my favorite shots of all time in any film is the mouth shot uh, during the dentist song oh, when, yes. it, when they're shooting out of the mouth. Uh, oh, yeah. And that was gross. actually really well puppeteered as well. I yeah. mean, because they, yeah. they even moved the tongue while it still was in place. If you look, it's not just wiggling. I mean, it's really like oh, your tongue whole, would be in your place. The in your whole mouth. mouth was moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like. But it was like the way it would be, you would enunciate the words it was singing. Because yeah. it was it was singing, so <laughs> it was disgusting. Yeah, it was. <laughs> mouths are, mouths are disgusting. If we get if we get nothing away else from this movie, it's that mouths are disgusting. <laughs> that whole that whole segment is designed to skeeve you. <laughs> yeah, but um, oh, that choreography, I oh. yeah. <laughs> I've oh, mentioned it before. Mama. I'm mentioning it again. It's that good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Steve Martin mama. really just yeah he just kills it. <laughs> It really brings it on that character. Uh, also, uh, uh, John Candy showing up as Wink Winkleson. Uh, I love seeing John Candy. Um, apparently, he was given a choice as to what he would play in the thing, uh, and he chose Wink Winkleson. Well, he had a riot with it for the couple of minutes that he was on screen. It was, I mean, every all of the guest stars, uh, when they show up, they just absolutely nail it. Uh, and what an extraordinary collection of, well, frankly, Second City alumni uh, this, uh, this this movie constitutes. I mean, to the point where uh, the guy offering to uh, uh, to uh, sell or to buy uh, cuttings of Audrey uh, of Audrey Two uh, was Jim Belushi in the theatrical version, which was awesome. But it was Paul Dooley who is, if anything, an even more underappreciated comic uh, character slash supporting actor in the uh, uh, direct quote unquote director's cut, uh, and another one of those guys where I'm always happy to see him on screen. But yeah, Christopher Guest, uh, Vincent Gardenia as Mushnik for the love of God, wonderful. Uh, yeah. He's so good. He's so good. He is not. Uh, unlike Mel Wells as Mushnik in the original, he is not the stealth protagonist of the film. In this one, Seymour actually does get to be the hero, and that's awesome. Uh, but uh, Gardenia's deliveries are... Uh, it was another one of those actors who was incapable of giving an inauthentic de- line delivery. Oh, one, regarding the first one, Mel, Mel Wells, apparently that was his favorite role he ever played. <laughs> you know the fact that Rick Moranis does play the protagonist I think is the reason I'm kind of shocked that there is an alternate ending or, or director's cut ending because you know he's he's such a sweet likable presence I couldn't I couldn't imagine the movie ending the way the original did and so when it ended on such a happy note with you know with a little ominous stinger at the end I, I was pretty happy but now that I know that everybody dies in this version I'm like wow that's that's pretty dark yeah actually but, his but, scene where he gets eaten is pretty well, it's not graphic, gets, but it's oh, just... He, oh, he gets eaten. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's pretty dark. It's dark. <laughs> but you get to see more puppets, so there's that. <laughs> no, I think the second they cast Rick Moranis, uh, the whole film took on a different tone. He he brings with him a kind of tone. Yeah. And pipes. Who the fuck it? Yeah. The he's guy great, can He's a great sing. singer. Well, um... I think it's uh, about time for us to wrap things up. Uh, does anybody have any 
final thoughts? I'm going to watch it again tomorrow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I say watch them both. Watch the Absolutely. original person. Watch the, the watch the musical. Yeah, these are I, these are actually both very charming films. But watching them back to back, it it made the it made the '86 version. It, it just sort of came out a little bit more. I saw more in it than I had seen before. I'd never seen the '60 version, and uh, watching them back to back was a was a treat. I definitely recommend that. It was. Yeah, I would agree with that. It it was very nice to see them back to back. That should about do it for us this week. Uh, next week, we'll be discussing David Lynch's Disney-produced G-rated film, The Straight Story, the true story of Alvin Strait, Richard Far- played by Richard Farnsworth, and his six-week journey on a sitting lawnmower to see his brother, who has suffered from a stroke. You can find us on Twitter at What's on the Pile or go to whatsonthepile.com. Thanks for hanging out.